it's like a 100 meter sprint you spend the first 10 meters deciding you want to be in the race because you can always pull up and step out if it's a credit you don't want but once you're in that race you want to get into the last 10 meters in a competitive position because there's no prizes for winning by 20 yards if you're that far out in front you've probably mispriced it you could probably get better and still win so the key is to be competitive when you're in that last 10 meters and then dip for the line because it's a photo finish and you've got to make sure you've got your nose ahead. That was Mark Wilton, a portfolio manager within Bearings European Private Finance Group. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode number three of season five. All season long, we'll be bringing you the latest factors shaping today's markets across asset classes like EM debt, high yield, private credit, real estate, and more. Remember, if you'd like to be the first to know about our latest episodes, follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. You can find us by searching Streaming Income. My guest today is Mark Wilton. Based in London, Mark is a managing director and portfolio manager in Bearings European Private Finance Group. Mark is part of a diverse team of more than 20 dedicated investment professionals deploying capital into direct lending strategies across Europe. The group is part of the firm's $29 plus billion global private finance platform and was recently ranked by Debtwire as the second most active lender in Europe. Our conversation focused on the dynamics shaping the European private credit market today. We focused on how the asset class has performed throughout the pandemic and what factors have contributed to either outperformance or underperformance across the industry. We talked about some of the unique characteristics of the European market, including how being a sole lender market impacts both access to deal flow and also pricing. And finally, we got an update on the latest developments on the ESG front, where Mark and team have been extremely active. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Mark Wilton. All right, Mark, thanks so much for uh, joining me today. Pleased to be with you. Great. Well, uh, let's start out high level. So we're talking about European private credit today. Um, and I thought maybe a good place to start there would be just kind of talk about performance uh, overall, what we've seen uh, from this asset class. So if we look back over the course of the last year and a half uh, through the pandemic period, uh, I'm curious, you know, how the asset class has performed. It's obviously not as easy as just looking at a Bloomberg screen to be able to tell that. Um, so talk us through, you know, how the asset class has kind of fared throughout this last year and a half to kind of set the stage for us. Yes, yeah, certainly. I think overall, the asset class has performed well. I think it's demonstrated the resilience of yield that investors have been looking for. I think that reliable, consistent return and a clear illiquidity premium to public markets. And I think in terms of some of the qualities of, of direct lending, such as sort of direct access, uh, have been a real advantage yeah, if I compare, you know, private markets to sort of more public high yield, you know, when there is a crisis such as the pandemic, 
you know, we have that direct access to senior management because often we're the, the sole lender. And so we're a key stakeholder, a real partner within the business. And so we get a lot of, of real-time information, time attention, liquidity forecast, latest sales projections, and that is ultra-valuable. Um, if you compare that with a, a sort of more public liquid market where, you know, you'll have quarterly information in arrears, and if you meet with management teams, it means historically you'd be in an auditorium, they would be on a podium and they would present for you know, a, a period of time and you'd listen. In private markets where you have that direct lender access, then you know, you, you're meeting one-to-one and you're really debating the issues they're facing. You're critiquing the business plans. Um, you're looking at, at uh, sort of market dynamics and you're discussing the, the sort of real-time and forecast information. And that when you're tested and, and clearly the market has been tested through the pandemic, then those are at times that that uh, direct a- access has been a real strong advantage. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and that's interesting kind of considering it from the point of view that the asset class has kind of been tested and, you know, maybe as a, you know, relatively new asset class uh, in the grand scheme of things, um, it sounds like, you know, at least to this point, the asset class has kind of, you know, passed that test. Um, but I imagine that it's not necessarily equal across the board in terms of how all portfolios and managers have kind of fared throughout that period. So even if the asset class uh, overall has kind of done well, you know, I'm sure there's some divergence. So talk to, talk to us a little bit about that. I'm interested in kind of what you're seeing out there in terms of, you know, manager performance and kind of what's been driving either outperformance or underperformance across the industry. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that is a key point because in private markets, you know, where access is everything and you do have, therefore, different portfolios across managers. Um, If I compare it with high yield, where, you know, a lot of the top managers will invest in all the same flow names, there's clearly different skills about picking assets and, and, and trading in and out relative value. But in private markets, building a quality portfolio is very much manager specific. So I think the key areas that that perhaps stand managers apart. Um, there is probably three areas. It, it's access to deal flow, um, it's investment philosophy, and then it's the sort of quality of, of the portfolios that they sort of build as a result of those first two. And and so if I start with with access, you know, I think in in private markets you need to be introduced to the transactions. And so I can't just tap into a Bloomberg terminal and put a buy order in. And so it is very much a case of of relationships, reputation, trust is key. You need to be in the top tier of a private equity sponsor's sort of lender relationships to make sure you see the best deals first. Um, and and that access is is not easily achieved. It it takes years of relationship building to to build trust, confidence, mutual respect, and that's I think um, sort of key areas that that differentiate managers that they have different access to deal flow and transactions. How about the uh, investment philosophy? Well, I think across the spectrum of direct lenders, not all managers seek the same outcome. Um, There's probably a concentration within Europe that seek the highest absolute return. And by that, I mean that they they push risk to keep returns high. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we 
are at a more conservative end, and there's others too, which, which tend to look at um, a more risk-adjusted return. And so often, you know, think that that sort of lending less uh, and and sort of reducing the the cost accordingly can actually make often a sort of smarter uh, investment, uh, particularly from managing a sort of diverse portfolio of risk. And and from that perspective, I think um, there's a we will see perhaps more volatility of outcomes through the pandemic from those managers that sought the higher risk because ultimately it, it always comes at a cost and and you know that that it's no surprise that the more riskier transactions the more riskier sectors the story credits you know that if your portfolio is weighted into that side then you know you've probably had more volatility through the through the pandemic as a result so what what would be some examples of like some of those riskier sectors or are you talking about structures as well or or both? Yeah, I think it's both. Um, but particularly on on sectors, if if you uh, think about areas that are just inherently cyclical. So, for instance, retail. Um, you know, retail clearly is off the agenda today. It's a, it's an area that that has been hit hard by the pandemic. You know, hospitality, restaurants would be a sort of similar area as well, and and that therefore a manager who was disproportionately invested into retail or hospitality and a a couple come to mind that they would obviously have a more challenging 2020 as a result and whilst nobody saw the pandemic coming um, and and foresaw those sort of impacts that that if you are weighted into cyclical and volatile sectors then at some point that is going to be tested uh, and and so you know they will have had a, a a tougher 2020 than the rest of the market. Sometimes I think about private credit as being a, you know, more of a longer term asset class. And sometimes some things take a little while to, to, to play out. So if you think about if you had a really difficult 2020, I mean, would that have already in theory impacted your portfolio by now? Or could there, or could it be the type of thing where there's like a delayed impact over time? Well, I think that's a, it's an excellent question because it all depends on the, to some degree on the valuation policies of the the individual manager mm-hmm. uh, and, and how transparent they are with their investors. Um, I think where you do have a sort of, uh, you know, a, a mark to market and, and sort of fair value approach, then it does it, it goes through immediately because you, you mark down those investments and it, it therefore immediately comes through your NAV and into your uh, uh, reported uh, net IRRs. Um, however, there is, I think, some pockets out there that that perhaps continue to hold it, either at, at sort of cost or par, with the sort of hope value that it will uh, will improve. Um, and so they they may take a little more time to wash out. But again, key for investors to diligence those areas uh, and make sure they fully understand the the valuation policy of the managers that they're talking to and um, that they test that out in terms of um, you know how they are valuing any assets that have suffered a default or in sectors that are uh, under pressure. Mark, one of the things you mentioned uh, around uh, one of your key points there was around access. And I want to just dive into access a little more because I think it is such an important uh, point uh, in this in this space. So if you think about the competitive environment today and in sourcing transactions, I mean, I'm curious, what are the factors today that are really driving 
you know, who's winning transactions and who's maybe missing out on some. Yeah, and I, I think access has probably been, um, you know, clear differentiator as we've come out of the pandemic. Um, I think what you've seen in the marketplace from our perspective is competition narrow. And whilst there is, um, you know, many managers active in, in the European market, what we've seen as a result of the pandemic is essentially much more off-market transactions, fewer large auction processes and private equity firms therefore doing you know real origination work. Uh, and, and when they have one of those sort of off-market gems, a quiet process, a proprietary process, then they don't want the world to know. So they're not going to introduce 20 lenders and mm-hmm. risk the fear of, of information slipping into the marketplace. They introduced their closest two, their closest three. And we're seeing a lot more of those sort of processes. And therefore, no longer do you need to be in the top 10 or the top five. Actually, you, you need to be in the top two or three because mm-hmm. they're the real gems. They're the ones where you see the ones they're super excited about. They think are the best opportunities and you get to work on those and that's you know a great opportunity and I think it's a result of the market I think we're seeing you know the private equity market is extremely competitive and so much more preempting of auctions much more off-market quiet processes and I think that's the theme that's going to continue when we look forward as well that's interesting so how does that actually work like um if two or three lenders are, you know, are contacted by a private equity sponsor, I'm curious, does that then narrow down to one lender or do you have, sometimes have club transactions? Typically in Europe, it does tend to be a winner takes all market. Uh, okay. Yeah. And and so key, typically, therefore, we will compete hard against the the other lenders who are introduced as well with an aim to win. Uh, at times, you you know you will be put together with a partner because the private equity sponsor will be fair and reasonable to two key relationships and say, look, your offers are very similar, it's close. You know, will you do? Uh, will you share the transaction? Or frankly, will one lead and, and the other come in as a more junior partner? And in those situations, you know, where we are doing sort of half the transaction or leading then and having a junior partner, you know, you've done all the work. I think I think we will be happily work with uh, another firm that, that we respect and value, but it's sort of not the norm. Whereas in that's a good contrast with the US market, where I think the, the sort of club market is still the main mentality. You compete to lead the deal, but then you accept that partners will come in as part of a small club. You know, in Europe, it tends to be you compete hard and somebody wins. Uh, and so therefore, the key is not only getting access to those key opportunities, but then when you spot the best ones, um, making sure that you win. Okay. And, and then what is the usually kind of like the determining factor there? Does it have something to do with your product offering or, or how does that usually play out? Product offering is a key feature in that um, I think there's, there's many in the European market who have a very narrow product offering of uh, perhaps you know, higher risk, high return, unitranche uh, uh, products. We can offer a much broader range, ranging from more bank-like, senior loan, and, and that means we have a continuum of risk return to play with. So as with any negotiation uh, and competitive situation, if you've got more levers to pull, it gives you an advantage. And so at times, our ability to lend less 
and perhaps charge a little less for that to reflect the lower risk is a competitive advantage. Um, but the best way I would describe it in terms of, you know, these sort of smaller processes where there's a narrower field, it, it's like a hundred meter sprint. And you you spend the first 10 meters deciding you want to be in the race because you can always pull up and step out if it's a credit you don't want. But once you're in that race, you want to get into the last 10 meters in, com- in a competitive position. Because there's no prizes for winning by 20 yards. Uh, because if you're that far out in front, you know, you, you've probably mispriced it. You could probably get better and still win. So the key uh, is okay. to be competitive when you're in that last 10 meters and then dip for the line. Because it's a photo finish and you've got to make sure you've got your nose ahead. Ah. Uh, and we spend, if you like, a disproportionate amount of time focusing on you know, that last 10 meters to make sure that we're competitive at the right time to make sure we win. I like that analogy. That that makes it easy to uh, to visualize and, and to remember. Um, okay, so you talked about the power of relationships. You talked about this kind of concept of being a sole lender market. You talked a little bit about, you know, product offering, being a differentiator. Is there anything else um, that is a factor when uh, PE sponsors are, are making decisions on which lenders to go with? I think the the power of incumbency is also a, a sort of key factor. And, w- and what I mean by that is is perhaps as one of the um, sort of oldest and, and, and well-established managers in Europe and, and probably one of the biggest uh, sort of portfolios, you know, we have over 75 names in the sort of European market. And, and when they're predominantly owned by private equity sponsors, there's always something happening. There's either follow-on transactions where essentially you're often unopposed because if the relationship's good, they want to borrow another 10, 20% of the original debt for a bolt-on acquisition or, or some other transaction, then essentially you're unopposed. And, and so incumbency brings you deal flow. But actually, it also unlocks certain situations where, you know, there is a sale between private equity sponsors. Um, and so those secondary transactions, the incumbent lender has an unfair advantage because they've got better knowledge and better access than anybody else in the marketplace. And we work hard in those situations to make sure we maximize, you know, that incumbency and others will too, to, to where they have it, then it is an advantage. And therefore having a, a large portfolio um, just gives you more of those opportunities where you have a hold a strong chance to win and stay invested in a high quality business. Okay, well, let's take this from the theoretical maybe to the real world here. Um, so I'm curious, uh, if you have one or two to hand, it would be interesting to hear about an actual example of how this has played out in the real world. So you talked about a number of themes that are differentiators when it comes to actually winning or losing transactions. Um, have you seen that play out for bearings, either on the winning or losing side? It'd be interesting to hear uh, an example. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, one one comes to mind particularly, which I'll start with, which which is is where we use the sort of differentiated product offering to to win in a very competitive situation. Um, this was a, a sort of UK uh, software business that that specialises in a particular area of financial services, um, and from a credit perspective, it's all the metrics that that any lender would love. Uh, you know, uh, high market share, uh, repeat uh, and recurring subscription revenue. 
um, very high cash conversion, um, diversified customer base, strong market position. And so it was a you know absolutely top tier credit. We recognized that straight away. Frankly, so did a number of our competitors. Um, and so there's a competitive auction. There's there's four or five private equity firms bidding. Um, sort of we're talking to them. Others are talking to them too. We put up what we thought were pretty competitive offers at you know relatively punchy uh, sort of leverage and and sort of the higher end of the spectrum of risk return. Um, it's fair to say there was some competitive offers out there. To say we were at six times leverage. There was also competitive offers out there at seven times, seven times plus. Um, and so whilst we felt our offer was competitive, there, there were other offers out there that were stretching the leverage uh, beyond levels we would be prepared to go. And so we were sitting thinking, well, perhaps this one won't be one for us. However, um, the actual bidder who, who sort of came to the forefront approached us sort of separately and said, we actually don't want to take seven times leverage. In fact, I don't really want to take six times leverage. We would rather put less leverage in and use that extra cash flexibility to invest in growth. And and this is sort of one of the, the um, really interesting dynamics that at times people perceive, particularly in you know, sort of hot sectors such as um, sort of software and tech, that the only way you can win is by offering crazy leverage. Um, and what that does is suck out all of the cash from the business to pay interest. And in the end, we did a leverage structure at about five and a quarter times leverage, uh, which we could therefore make uh, at a cheaper pricing to reflect the fact that we're taking a much lower risk. And that was, frankly, a compelling offer. And, and we were mandated, uh, the sponsor won the auction, uh, because actually the management team were also focused on the debt facility and were, were keen and interested to look at our lower leverage solution. And, and therefore, that flexibility to um, reduce risk uh, compared with a certain number of our peers who, who want to chase the highest returns uh, and therefore push risk up, you know, it was an advantage and a, a clear differentiator in our solution that meant in the end, we were sort of unopposed on that and I think got a much superior risk return on what is nothing other than a really high quality software asset. Wow. Okay. That's a great example. That's really interesting to hear. I guess sometimes being more conservative does pay off. So that's uh, encouraging to hear. Any other examples come to mind? Yeah, I'll perhaps, perhaps use the, an example of incumbency where it can work in your favor and it can also work um, also sometimes it perhaps doesn't work in your favor and what, what do I mean by that I think we've had sort of two deals recently one where we were the incumbent lender um, the, the whole market knew that the sell side advisors had been appointed and that the, the asset was coming to market and so there was a bit of a feeding frenzy and excitement that this was going to be a new attractive asset we then get a call from two private equity sponsors who were teaming up together to preempt the auction and wanted to move really quickly. And sorry, what, what kind of company was this one that you're talking about? This is uh, essentially, it's a, a sort of outsourced business services uh, business. Okay. This is a UK company? It is. Okay. And, uh, and the key there was that they wanted to move really quickly and to 
to pr successfully preempt an auction, they needed to be able to demonstrate that they had committed funding. And essentially, as the incumbent lender, that means that it was really only us who could do that because we had access to all of the historic information. Uh, we already had clearly uh, good knowledge and regular interaction with the management team. And, and so because of the strength of that existing relationship, both with the company and with them as private equity, they just run with us. And um, we completed the deal quickly, quietly, essentially before anybody else in the marketplace had a look. Um, and that's where incumbency works very well for you. Um, just to sort of counter that and just be quite you know, recognize that we don't always win. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you that, so I'm glad you're uh, being proactive. We we clearly don't always win. Obviously, I would like to, but it's sort of uh, and, and one occasion where we lost recently. And incumbency does mean that you have better information. Sometimes you have better information compared with the sell side story that may be spun by advisors. And clearly, I won't be able to say what this is. It, it is it was a, a sort of French transaction recently where essentially we were outbid by competitive offers off the basis of pro forma, adjusted uh, run rate, EBITDA numbers, which we thought was the complete work of fiction. And, you know, just in general, in that situation, we almost knew too much because, again, we had much better information as incumbent lender. And so whilst my team was distraught to be missing out on what they thought was a good opportunity, I was actually quite relaxed about it because the competitive offer at levels we would never have done. So I, I always... I'm concerned if we if we lose to a competitive offer where we would have made the same offer, then I think you know we were too slow. We missed something uh, in terms of the, the the back to my race analogy. You know, you were too slow to make your last lunge, and there you have to answer the questions of why was that, and we could have done it better. But where we lose to a competitive proposal where we never would have done that because we think it, it was too much in terms of risk, uh, then then actually, you, you know, you just have to accept that and, and move on to the next. I guess sometimes it's uh, not the worst thing in the world to lose out on a transaction. So as we think about the competitive environment overall, I'm just curious, as you look at uh, pricing that you're seeing uh, overall today uh, in the market, uh, curious as to how this competitive environment is feeding through to that pricing. And I guess I would be curious, you know, as you look at, um, as you look at the, the pricing levels, kind of uh, leverage levels, et cetera, today, um, how does that compare versus what you were seeing maybe a year ago, maybe two years ago? And then are there any areas to you that are kind of jumping out as like offering particular value or is it too hard to, to generalize? Yeah. And, and I think it is, um, it's a really interesting question because there's no easy answer, I'm afraid. But in in general, I would say that pricing levels are consistent with our experience before the pandemic. And so when I look at our previous funds that were sort of fully ramped ahead of the pandemic, uh, and I look at how our latest one is ramping, then actually the metrics are very, very similar. Um, uh, because our strategy is is unchanged, we actually think the market opportunity is coming towards us, and so you know it's a great benchmark for 
looking at that sort of consistency of of returns uh, and the reliability of returns. And and that gives us great comfort, both in terms of ramping the new fund, that the market opportunity remains. I would say a year ago, as we came out of the pandemic, and clearly there was a number of managers who probably took a step out of the market at that stage because they were... um, focused on internal issues or on portfolio issues for the that just meant there was fewer managers sort of playing this time last year and therefore there probably was a brief window where um sort of uh, pricing stepped up a little but it wasn't significant um you know it the market in general in terms of private credit is a lot more stable uh, than sort of high yield. So you don't tend to see this sort of swings in volatility of pricing and returns. You know, it, it's, there's more steady drift rather than sudden, sudden movements. And, and there was a definite pricing opportunity a year ago, perhaps 25, perhaps 50 basis points, that sort of magnitude. And that's probably normalized now as uh, sort of a year on. Makes sense. Um, you know, just switching gears for a minute, one of the uh, big trends that's, that we've seen across the market and in this asset class specifically has been obviously a much greater uh, focus on ESG and sustainability. Um, we've had some of your colleagues on in the past, including uh, Adam Wheeler, uh, and discussed some of the team's efforts on this front, including uh, what I would believe was the first uh, sustainability-linked loan in the European private credit market that Bearings uh, structured about a year ago, actually. Um, so I, I would love to hear an update from you just in terms of what is going on uh, in that space um, and, and what's kind of developed uh, over the last year. I think it's a really exciting space, actually. We have, um, after those sort of initial moves where I think we were one of the early pioneers of uh, sustainability-linked loans and and sort of ESG-focused lending, then uh, I think it is clearly a theme that's been adopted throughout the marketplace. And I think we've continued to focus and build because I think it is a very dynamic area where if anybody claimed to have all the answers today, you know, I, I would immediately doubt that because it, it is moving too quickly. Yeah. Um, and one of the issues in private credit is that we are dealing with mid-market businesses. And so some of that is like they're learning as well. Um, and that they're learning about the information they need to capture to be able to report to us so that we can actually have meaningful tests. So we've now done eight or nine um, similar transactions, and I think it's increasingly a theme. And so, you know, every quarter there seems to be a higher proportion that has some element of sustainability-linked loans within them. And I think we've been very disciplined to ensure that that where we do include these criteria, that they are true tests, Mm. Um, that it's not just sort of marketing hype and it's Mm -hmm. really just a discount, that these are really forward-looking ESG challenging criteria which which is asking the business to step forward and improve, uh, and I think that is is the key to make sure that that both they have meaning, um, and and that that you know we feel that that they are doing the right thing, because um, underlying view and you know personal view on it is that lenders that embrace ESG you know are the long term winners. Um, and that's from a point of view of both from our activities and the investments we're making, that if we're backing businesses that are interested and focused on the importance of, of 
measuring, monitoring and improving their sort of ESG criteria and sustainability criteria, then I think that that will be a portfolio that that will be resilient and we'll be proud of. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, I have two kind of related questions on the back of that. One is I'm curious of if these if we're purely talking about incentives here or if there are also uh, penalties. So obviously they have the kind of carrot and stick approach. Uh, so I'd be curious about that. And then also I'm curious of, about how including, you know, some type of sustainability linked ratchets in a, in a loan, how does that impact the, you know, competitive environment? What we were talking about earlier, does that make it more likely or less likely for you to be able to win a transaction if you want to really make sure there's something ESG related in the structure? And and it's a fair point that we need to compete to win good assets. And so we need companies to be adopters of of ESG monitoring uh, and the sort of criteria that we're seeking to measure and and offer the discounts against. And so you do need to have buy-in both from the owner and the management teams of the borrowers that we're lending to because we are lenders at the end of the day. Um, yeah, we don't sit on boards. We don't own businesses, so we cannot direct. We can only encourage the right behaviour. But I think increasingly we're seeing this as a really important area that can stand us apart from different offers, um, because if we take it seriously, and this is high on the agenda of the management team and or the private equity owner, then then actually that that helps differentiate our. Um, loan compared with somebody else's. And and in the majority of cases, and increasingly as the years gone on, we're seeing this as an open door. And so it is, you've got to push through and, and work with them because actually it's quite complicated to find the right criteria for the for particular business it's not a one fits all you've got to think hard and and sort of work closely with them to identify what makes sense and then set a suitably challenging agenda that moves them in the right direction so i think the ratchet um to date uh, has been a downward sort of ratchet so that that they will benefit from some cost savings on the interest if they achieve the milestones. It's an interesting one about carrot and stick. We have heard of one transaction in the marketplace that's that's been that, but it, in terms of we're not seeing that offered. And therefore, ultimately, if that was a requirement of all the loans, then potentially you would be competed out. And so, you know, to make the most impact of, of the opportunities that I think the sustainability link loans brings, you've still got to win. And and so, yeah, we have to have an eye on on winning and being competitive. So that's not a feature that we've seen to date. But I could see that coming over the next few years because one thing I think of is this, particularly in the mid-market private equity-owned uh, sector of the marketplace in which we see once the private equity investors have been back around their fundraising cycle for the few of them that it's not on their agenda yet i think it will be very firmly on their agenda mm-hmm. and you will see therefore a lot more of their portfolio companies generating the information that we're asking for we want to see and that will make it more uh, of an opportunity to deploy the sustainability link loans um you know, on, on every transaction, but we're not there today. 
Okay. Okay. Got it. Well, thank you for that update. It's fascinating how much changes in just a year um, in this space. It seems like there's, there's been so many advancements and I'm sure if we have this conversation a year from now, um, we'll be saying the, the same thing. So it's, uh, I fully take your point around, uh, you know, I, I don't know if this was your words exactly, but it being more of a journey than a, than a destination. Um, it, it seems like uh, that's kind of the, the right way to view it. Absolutely. Um, all right, Mark. So we're coming to the end of our conversation here. We've covered a lot of ground. Uh, last thing I want to ask you is looking out over the next year, two years, curious, uh, any guidance that you would offer, you know, maybe for investors who either have a private credit allocation in Europe or are considering one, um, what would you focus on? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think you know, I think the asset classes we started has performed well through the pandemic. And so, you know, I, I think there is opportunity for investors to increase their, uh, their their allocations and scope in terms of investing in private debt. Um, and I think more will grow confidence in doing that because of the resilience that have been demonstrated. I think a key for investors should be to pick a manager that has experience through a cycle who, can, who has managed through difficult times and, and our European business has been going 15, 16 years. And and so, you know, we've managed through good times, through bad times, just as an example. And, and I think that's an important sort of qualification uh, to have and credential. Uh, and I think secondly, to have a manager who matches with their investment philosophy. You know, if they're looking for perhaps discipline, conservative investing and a reliable risk-adjusted return, uh, you know, that, that will favor players like ourselves if you're looking for uh, a sort of higher absolute return and, and you're willing to take more risk to achieve that you know then that might open up a different spectrum of of, uh, of managers and so it's fitting the investment philosophy of the manager with exactly the sort of risk return aspirations that you're looking for you know another area is is really to look at how the pandemic um, as as affected portfolios do real due diligence work on performance, you know, because I think the pandemic has clearly highlighted the differentiation between managers, the, the both in terms of philosophy, both in terms of performance, and ultimately in any private asset class, access is key, and so you know, sort of high quality portfolios can only be built if you have access to high quality deal flow. Uh, and so that's the sort of start and end of all sort of issues in private market. Great. Well, Mark, those are some really important messages to leave folks with today. So I appreciate you wrapping that up so cleanly. Um, and I appreciate you taking us through kind of the ins and outs of what's going on in the European private credit space today, especially around the competitive environment. I think this is really interesting to hear, um, you know, how some of these transactions are getting won and how some of them are getting lost as well. Very interesting to, to get that insight. So Mark, thanks so much for, uh, for joining me. Hope to get you back on the show again soon. Thank you for having me. And I'll, I'll very much look forward to that. Thanks for listening to episode number three of season five of Streaming Income. Remember, if you want to be the first to hear about our latest episodes on asset classes ranging from high yield and private credit to real estate and emerging markets, be sure to follow Streaming Income on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.